You're listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum. This podcast is sponsored by zoom to You, Australia's on-demand courier marketplace. Get your parcels delivered within hours rather than days. Today joining us on Founders On Air is Alex Turnaga, an entrepreneur from Colombia who is currently based in the USA. Alex has founded a number of companies over the past 26 years with his first company at the age of 14. Alex is also an investor on Columbia Shark Tank and has invested in more than 20 companies to date. Thanks for joining us, Alex. It's great to have you and great to have our first international guest uh, joining us on uh, Founders On Air. No, thank you guys for inviting me. Excellent. It's quite an honor. Yeah, so we're super excited to hear about your story, um, listen and be able to share your story with lots of entrepreneurs, um, both here in Australia and across the world. So I thought, first off, if you could start by telling us sort of how you got started as as an entrepreneur and sort of how that sort of evolved, particularly at such a young age at, at 14. Yeah, well, it all comes back to my first memory in life. When I was four years of age, I saw a computer for the first time. I actually like played with a computer for the first time. And I was shocked by the fact that I could control what was appearing on the screen. And since then, I became obsessed with the idea of getting my own computer. Now, I come from a modest family. We didn't have money for a car, of course, even less for a computer. And 10 years later, 11 years later, I got a pamphlet from the bank. I had a bank account, a savings account for kids. And I got a pamphlet from the bank saying something along the lines of, we are upgrading your bank account from a kid's account to a young adult account, something like that. And it had many benefits, like now you have a debit card and and many things. And the very last one said, bank loans, like you can actually get a loan. And that was like, aha, I've been waiting for this for 11 years. Now I'm going to be able to get a loan, buy my computer and do whatever I want. So I started thinking, well, if I get the loan, I have to pay the loan. So I could potentially use the computer that I'm going to buy to pay for that loan. This is 1993, I believe. And back in the day, it wasn't common for people to have computers at their homes. But many students, especially university students that were working on their thesis papers, they started to like the idea of having a digitalized version of their papers so that whenever the professor gave them feedback, they didn't have to rewrite the entire thing. They only had to rewrite a couple of pages. So the idea of data entry for college students uh, became kind of popular at that age. So I asked the only friend I had who had a brother that had a computer to print a sign that said, we do data entry for college students. And I got multiple photocopies of that paper, pasted them on all over the neighborhood. And people started coming to my place. This is back in Bogota, Colombia, in the outskirts of Bogota, Colombia. They started coming to our house asking for the service. How much did we charge for it and how long would it take? And the only issue is that we didn't have the computer yet. So I couldn't offer the service. But anyway, I got an idea of how much money I could charge and the kind of volume that I could get. And then I went to the bank. And the day of my birthday, like two days later, I went to the bank to get my loan because it was I, they would make the switch from the old bank account to the new type of bank account on my birthday. And I waited online. I got to the bank teller and I asked for the loan. And the guy cracked up and uh, said, oh, you need to be an adult and you need to have a job. And like, what are you doing here? I remember that I got really, really mad at them. But my next memory is sitting in a large office uh, in front of the bank manager. And she started asking me questions 
about like, why are you here? Why are you asking for money? Where are your parents? Is everything okay with you? And I explained that, yes, everything was fine. And she started asking questions about the actual business that I had in mind. So I didn't realize back then, but it was my first business pitch ever. That was a Saturday. Uh, she asked me to fill some paperwork. And I came back three days later with the paperwork and I got a loan for the equivalent of $800 or so. Yeah, right. It was enough for me. Yeah, that's excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And with that, I was able to go buy my first computer. And even though it was just me working three hours in the morning or so, I found that yeah, my first business and uh, I wanted the business to feel credible for people to trust in it. So I named it Apache Axe Cybernetic Enterprises Limited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a long name for a really small business. And yeah, it worked. I ended up paying the loan. And years later, I realized that as I learned about the banking system, the bank wasn't the one giving me the loan. It was the bank manager. She gave me the loan from her personal account. And when I talk about angel investors, I believe that if anyone has been an angel in my life, it's been the bank manager that gave me the loan. By the way, I haven't been able to find her. I'm still looking for her to give her uh, a big hug and thank you. Because I wouldn't be here if it weren't for her. Wow. That's awesome. So obviously that bank manager was like a very uh, lucky thing that sort of occurred and sort of what sort of then happened in terms of you starting sort of a number of other businesses thereafter over the years? Yeah, that business by the time I was 16 morphed into kind of a computer maintenance business. I started fixing computers for people, eventually fixing computers and setting networks and maintenance and antiviruses and stuff for companies. And eventually, when I was 19, I decided to move to migrate to the U.S. The internet was just arriving to Colombia. And as I got access to it, I realized that there were many, many, many things happening here that were getting to Colombia only years later. So I shut down the business, got a one-way ticket for the U.S. Well, after six months of waiting for a visa back in the day for Colombians, it was very, very difficult to get a visa. But finally, I got one. I was lucky. And then I moved to the U.S. and I landed in uh, Framingham, Massachusetts. I realized that my English wasn't as good as I thought. It hasn't improved a lot, but it was (laughs) really terrible back in the day. And I really wanted to work for a large company and learn from it. So I applied to Lycos and Compaq and stuff like that, but none of them paid attention to me. So I ended up having to work in McDonald's in the overnight shift on Starbucks during the day. And I believe that the customers of Starbucks found, I guess that, I don't know, exciting or interesting, definitely interesting that the barista didn't speak English at all. (laughs) I was making coffee all day long and I couldn't interact with the customers because I had no idea what they were. But the coffee was good though. And eventually I started doing consulting again. The dot-com bubble was getting bigger and bigger at that moment. So with little experience, I got jobs with multiple startups. And that eventually led me to co-found my first internet business by the time I was 22, voice one, two, three. Awesome. And so I came across yourself through Voice Money and sort of the editing service, the podcast editing service and the marketplace that you've built there. And sort of how did that sort of start out? Voice Money is the second company that I've co-founded on the voiceover industry. The first one is Voice123, and I think it makes sense to potentially provide a background in terms of how Voice123 got started for it to make sense in terms of why we got to Voice Money. So we started Voice123 back in 2002. 
with my wife, Tanya Zapata. She was doing voiceover. She was trying to start a voiceover career back in the day. And it was very difficult for her to get traction, even though she had a really good voice. But then as we learn about the business, we realize the reasons. And it's that the process was very manual and very relationship oriented. So back in the day when you needed a voice actor, you had to identify. So a voice actor, a person that does voices for movies, advertising, radio, TVs, video games, etc, etc. So back in the day, if you were producing any of those things and you needed a voice actor, you had to go to a casting director. The casting director would in turn contact a lot of talent agents. They would in turn contact many of their voice actors and ask the voice actors to go to audition in recording studios. So those are recording studios that are kind of small, uh, not that sophisticated and focus on getting auditions done. Then the recording studio would send the audio to the talent agent. The talent would pick the best voices, send them to the casting director. The casting director would pick the best voices, send them to the client. And if everything went well, the client will find a voice that they like, and then they would book now a proper recording studio, and everybody meets there, and they do the recording session, an hour, several hours, multiple days. Then, if everything worked well, they hired yet another person called a paymaster. The paymaster would get the money and then split it among the talent agent, the voice actor, and the unions as well. We identified that there wasn't a lot of meritocracy on that process, but it was more about who you knew. In fact, not only that, but what level of influence you could have in other people. Many talent agents in the voiceover industry ended up becoming infamous because of the Me Too revolution of a couple of years ago. Many people exposed what they, what they did and how they took advantage of aspiring voice actors and voice actresses on that front. So, but going back again to 2002, we realized, well, all of this is not only very manual, but it's very algorithmical. We can potentially be that algorithm that does all of this for people. We started working on nights and weekends with my wife on creating an automated casting service for voice actors online. After seven months of work, really hard work, we launched it and it took off very quickly. It took a long time for companies that used to buy voices and, and casting directors to use it. But for people that were finding or were looking for a voiceover for the first time, it was a no-brainer. I can hire a casting director that is going to charge me $3,000 to do a voiceover, or I can go online, use a free service, and then get it done much quicker and for a fraction of the price. So that took off, and to this day, is still the largest service for casting voice actors. Now, Voice123 doesn't get in the middle of the transaction on purpose. We designed the service to, to be more like a shopping mall. Uh, instead of a supermarket. In the supermarket, you go and you pay the supermarket and the supermarket kind of assumes responsibility for what you're selling uh, or for what you're buying. Uh, a shopping mall, they, the shopping mall connects you with the different stores, but they don't assume responsibility. So we saw Voice123 more, more like a shopping mall. But little by little, we started having clients telling us, hey, I don't need you only to match me with the voice actor. I need you to take care of everything. And then finally, in 2012, we got several leads saying, hey, I need a thousand different voices within a month. And I love you guys to do it for me. And even better, if we could use an API, meaning our computers connecting with your computer, so we don't have to do anything manual, but getting everything done automatically. So in 2012, we decided, you know, it makes sense to that. Let's pursue the idea. And we founded Voice Money. So voice money is indeed like a supermarket. We take care of everything for the client. And in fact, many clients don't ever interact 
with the voice actor that is doing the work for them. And not because they don't want to interact or not because they don't care. It's just that they, they have systems where they are getting dozens, hundreds of voices every single day. They don't have the time to do that. They want a service that offers reliability, that offers predictability, and is going to take care of any logistical challenge. So we like to call it mission-critical outsourcing of creative work. So that's how Voice Money got started. And eventually we realized that we could also offer other services and then we changed it to Bunny Inc. And recently we changed the name once again to Bunny Studio. And now we offer voiceovers, translations, writing, post-production, podcast editing, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's growing, fortunately, quite well. And by the way, this happens to many entrepreneurs. We were really afraid that Voice Bunny was going to cannibalize Voice123. Like we had a high level of certainty that we were going to kill Voice123 just by having Voice Money out there. It didn't happen. Not only the clients that the two companies have tend to be very different, but also the voice actors that succeed on one platform are not the same ones that succeed on the other platform. The dynamics are very unique on that, on that front. Oh, interesting. And you started that with funding or without funding? Both without funding. The first one out of ignorance, the second one out of luck, I guess. Uh, when I say that is back in the day, 2003, I had no idea what an angel investor was. And I didn't know that. And yes, I knew what venture capital was. I knew that there were companies raising millions of dollars, but I never imagined that I was at that level or that I could even like approach those people. So we were forced to think about ways of monetizing the product early on. That's to some degree why we decided to make it non-transactional because we realized, well, the only way that we can monetize this early on is we charge voice actors a fee for getting more exposure in the platform, what they call a freemium service. So you can use it for free, but you can pay a little bit and then you get a boost on the search results and the invitations to castings. So this is a subscription that you pay ahead of time. You pay, you pay for one year and then you get that status, what we call in Voice123, the premium status for one year. But the good thing is that we got the money and then we could use the money to go buy traffic and get clients for Voice123. So we were able to kickstart the network effects by using the money that clients were giving us in the, our users were giving us in the platform. So as a consequence, we were able to bootstrap that business. And eventually with Voice Bunny, the platform is way more complex. The software is way more difficult to do because Voice Bunny not only does the matching, it does the matching, the project management, quality control, pricing, et cetera, et cetera. So it took significant, a larger effort to get Voice Bunny to become a viable business. But fortunately, we had the cash flow of Voice123. So we used the cash flow of Voice123. We will pay ourselves dividends from Voice123 and take that money and put it into Voice Bunny. And after three years or so of investment, we Voice Bunny became self-sustainable on that front. Now we merge all of the companies into one holding group. Um, but back in the day, it was like having two separate businesses that happened to have mostly the same owners. Alex, firstly, thanks for making our podcast sound so good and thanks to your team. So uh, a bit of a plug there for the Voice Bunny uh, business. But really interesting to hear your story so far. It sounds like you were really disrupting um, a very archaic business there and one that had some very unscrupulous sides to it, as you mentioned, the Me Too side as well, which is disappointing to hear. But how did you kind of get that early traction in the Voice123 business and what challenges did you have to overcome early on? 
we did a lot of spam. <laughs> so <laughs> I think the word wasn't even spam back in the day. So, but um, but it was cool. So, so what happened when, when you create a two-sided platform? I mean, today we I mean we use that sophisticated working a two-sided platform. Back in the day, it was just an online casting service, right? You need clients on one side, meaning people that need a voice actor, and you need a bunch of voice actors. So you have to solve the chicken and egg problem. So back in the day, what we did is we realized, well, we need to start with voice actors. We need to have voice actors in the system, in the database, so that when a client arrives, they can see something in there. So for seven months, while uh, I was coding the website, Tanya, she was collecting email addresses of voice actors that she found online. So every day she would go online and use search engines to look for websites of voice actors, then either contact them via their contact forms and that way get their email address or just find their email address in the website. And with that, she collected almost 10,000 email addresses for a period of, again, seven months. So when we opened the website, when we released the website, we sent emails to 10,000 people. And back in the day, I mean, today it will be spam, but back in the day, people were like, well, there is an online platform for me to find voiceover work. So we got like an 80% open rate and a 20% click-through rate. Like those numbers are impossible to see today. So we got out of those 10,000 emails, we got 2,000 people creating profiles on the website. And then we took, we had saved $20,000. That was our life savings together. We started investing in pay-per-click advertising. Google AdWords had launched like a year ago. Very few people were using it. Definitely none of the large companies out there were using it. So we were able to buy traffic from Google at a very low cost and that way get clients into the platform. So we got to liquidity within a week of launching the service, which is today will be impossible to do. But back in the day, we were lucky to be able to, to do it. So Alex, you, you mentioned the chicken and egg uh, saga, which all of us two-sided marketplace founders have. I guess what advice would you have for marketplace founders or founders looking to start a marketplace today? As you said, the market's kind of changed a bit since you started, but I'm sure you've um, you know invested in other marketplaces. Keen to hear your words of wisdom. My word of wisdom is to stay away from it. It's very difficult to do it. Today. Don't start. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, back. Like, I think that anyone trying today to build, for example, a marketplace that would like to compete with Voice123 is going to have a very hard time to do it. And that's not only Voice123, any other platform because of the network effects, right? Uh, the product, while it is important, the network is more important and getting that network becomes really, really expensive to do. So you have to be very imaginative. Is that the correct way of pronouncing it? Imaginative? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah creative, yeah. To come up with ways in which your service, your proposal, whatever your, your value proposition is significantly better than what the current network has to offer. So a few things you have to do first is learn a lot about two-sided platform strategy. There is a really good book called Platform Revolution. It's like two years old. It took an academic approach in terms of analyzing these kind of businesses. Uh, there is a full chapter in how to how to get started, like strategies for the chicken and egg challenge on that front. So they are not going to solve all of your problems, but at least you're going to know the theory behind it and you're going to have a wider tool set. 
then get ready to fake one of the two sides. You have to fake either the demand or the offer and do it systematically while you pretend to get liquidity and then you go after the side that you had faked to begin with. It's not the only way that you can solve the issue of the chicken and egg problem, but it's one of the most common ways today to be able to break in and be innovative. I think that there is a lot of opportunities if you are innovative on the business model side, which usually is not spoken about. Fred Wilson, a venture capitalist from New York City, posted an article a few months ago that I found quite interesting. And he said that there is more disruption on business model innovation. Usually there is more disruption when there is business model innovation than when there is technology innovation. And I think he's right on that regard. So platforms today, there are many platforms that try to monetize too early. They, they slow down network effects by trying to monetize too quickly either the offer or demand side of the marketplace. And that leaves the doors open for new platforms that could offer a full a service that is completely free for both sides and identify ways of monetizing otherwise. For example, the business that I'm doing today, for example, it's uh, one of their premises is that, that we can innovate with business models. But yeah, we try to try to think out of the box. Voice123, we came up with a new business model that didn't exist back in the day in the voice of industry. Voice1, we also innovated with a different business model in there. So yeah, try to do it and get ready to either put a lot of money or raise a lot of capital because today is way more expensive to build something, especially if you're trying to build something in a relatively large industry that it used to be 17 18 years ago when we got started with voice one, two, three. Yeah, no, it's definitely much harder uh, today than it was years ago. And so running today as a global business, how does that sort of go in terms of dealing with customers in lots of different locations and from all places around the world? Do you run a team that's just in one time zone or do you run multiple time zones? Many, many time zones. So now we have people in over 12 different countries. In the case of Bonnie Studio in particular, that's the company of our group that has the most variety of people in different countries. And one of the reasons is that one of our teams, the team that we call the production management team, we try to set it up to offer 24-7 support to our clients. So Bonnie Studio, it's a lot of the work is automated. We invest a lot of, on uh, project automation and artificial intelligence and machine learning. But it does work most of the time, but in some cases it doesn't work, right? So, for example, we might have a project where uh, the voice actor was working on the project and had a family emergency. And uh, somehow the system doesn't know what to do at that stage. So we raise a flag and a production manager comes in and tries to solve the issue. So for that, we like to offer 24-7 support. And that means that we have people in Colombia, in Argentina, in Brazil, in Portugal, in South Africa, in Egypt, in Dubai, India and Japan to be able to cover all of that spectrum. And it's amazing. I mean, we are a fully remote team. There are companies that are remote friendly. They allow their team members to work from the office, but also work from home. We are what's called an all-remote team, meaning there is no office you can go to. All of the members of the team either work from home or the co-working space of their choice. And uh, But once a year, we all meet in person. And it's a highlight for many of us to get to see face-to-face people that you have interacted with a lot. That, yes, you may have seen via video conference, but now you see them you know, in front of you in flesh. 
And not only that, but people that come from so many different cultures. It's, it's such a melting pot. So even getting ready for that is interesting because we have to learn about the other cultures. Like there are some cultures that it's okay to hug people. There are some cultures that, that definitely you don't want to do that, right? So that's some preparation that at least for me is exciting. But then even then getting to know about people from so many different backgrounds and stories and very quickly developing this network of friends all over the world that you can go visit and 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 really feel like a local. I know it's it's amazing. Yeah, awesome. I guess my experience in using the service, I was just super impressed how quickly they were responding and asking questions and then also the proactive nature of sort of some of the staff members sort of coming back and saying, do you want to have a call to sort of run you through some tips on how you can improve your recording and all this sort of stuff? And so it's interesting, I'm presuming there was some automation that was built into that and sort of picking up and detecting that I was using the service more often and that sort of stuff. Yep. Yeah, it was, it was really, really good. Yeah, indeed. But I mean, one of the reasons we are also uh, fully remote is because we like to bring the best talent to the team. And if we limited the selection to a given city, we will be limiting our talent pool to 1,000 the size that we have by going global in that regard. And, and in Boni Studio, our motto is we get shit done. So, uh, the, I mean, the slogan is we hope to it, but I wanted it to be we get shit done. And we attract people to the team that have that mentality. Like they really like to get stuff done on that regard. So that's what you have identified. While we have a lot of processes automated and stuff like that, I mean, the automation reflects the spirit of the team. We just try to replicate what a really good professional human being would actually do. This podcast is sponsored by Parkhound, Australia's parking marketplace, to find a convenient parking space near your home or office. Alex, you've been very generous in sharing with us, you know, how you found the problem to solve, how you got that early traction with a lot of grit. And I think you might be the original growth hacker from the early 2000s. And so we'll give you that title. But I guess what are some of the best customer acquisition channels that you guys have used to get to some serious scale that you've got today? There have been two stages on all of the companies that I've created. The early stages to solve the chicken and egg problem, and then the stage of growth. I share with you the one that we use in Voice123, right? In Voice Bunny, when we launched, the initial acquisition channels were primarily PR and some road hacks. We actually ended up automatically podcasting. When podcasting wasn't cool, we were podcasting, we creating podcasts out of blogs that had copyrights open for people to do whatever they wanted to do with the articles. But that only helps kickstart the businesses, the network effects. In both cases, the main acquisition channel has always been search engine optimization, meaning people typing in keywords and finding our website, but more importantly, word of mouth. And that is, they learn from their friends, they learn from their colleagues what we do, and then they come to our service. And I believe that for most businesses, that should always be the best, the most important acquisition channel, because that means that you have a product that is good enough for people to feel proud telling others about it. And how many years into the business would you say that you felt those network effects or those sort of word of mouth channels starting to really flow? Well, in voice one, two, three, it was very quick. Like within two months, we felt that voice money, it took 15 months 
and uh, for Torre, the business that I'm running now, it took three years. That's how complexity in terms of internet businesses it's adding up. Like I'm sure that when we were coming up with cars, the first cars took potentially only a couple of weeks, a couple of months to be built and for people to start using them. Today, any company that wants to create a new car has to invest years and years of development before they even have a prototype and then many more years for them to actually be producing that car at scale. So that's happening with software as well and especially with, with platforms. Can you share with us a hairy moment that you've had in your business? You know, we've all had them. How did you get through it? Oh, there have been so many hairy moments in the company. I mean, very recently I was on vacation and we were visiting a volcano in the countryside of Colombia. And uh, no connectivity, no phone connectivity. So I was unplugged over there. And uh, when we were coming back, it was Sunday night. Suddenly my phone explodes with WhatsApp messages and Slack messages. And they, it was several members of the Bonnie Studio team telling me we got hacked and people were able to get money out of our PayPal accounts into their accounts. And it's happening at a rate of $10,000 an hour. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> the, and they were looking for me because they needed some kind of a password that I had that I was the only person that had it by mistake. So they couldn't get PayPal to help them and stop what was happening. So I, of course, right away tried to call PayPal and identify the issue and how the hackers were doing it. So what happened is that a bunch of people in the Philippines, they identified how they could hack our system to offer work in the platform, like showcase they were writers, I believe. They used the writing, a writing service, Writing Bunny. And then they were hiring themselves. And then they were getting the money out right away with the waiting period that we have in place precisely for safety reasons on that regard. Anyway, a few hours later and a few hundred thousand dollars later as well, we were able to block the system and then pray for PayPal to be able to block the flow of money out of those other accounts to external bank accounts. Fortunately, within five days, they told us that they were able to block most of the accounts and we ended up recovering like 90% of the, of the money. But those were nine tenths days for us. Far out. That is full on. Oh, and you know, I couldn't blame anyone because I designed the safety systems that they hacked, right? So it was <laughs> my fault. I couldn't blame anyone but myself for leaving that loop holding the system. What would you take away from as a learning from that? I think that the most important thing I believe in there is that I had hired, not me, actually my chief operations officer, he had hired a guy obsessed with numbers to manage our finance. And he is so obsessed with that, that he decided to check our bank accounts a Sunday morning. And that's how he identified the issue on a Sunday. If we didn't have a person that was so passionate about his work as he is, we will have lost way more money and uh, potentially not been able to recover it. So yeah, I could say that maybe 
closing the loophole or being more careful with that or sharing the password with other members of the team will have been a good lesson from that. But, but I think that the most important lesson is having people in the team that are very passionate about what they do on that front. And in this case, it's Cybos. Uh, that's uh, an awesome story uh, that you got through that and survived it. It's uh, excellent. And looking back now over sort of the last sort of, you know, since you started that business and other businesses, what do you think are the sort of the key sort of KPIs that you look for and that have like really helped you with success in managing these businesses? This is something that I learned later on when we created Voice123. I'm not kidding. We didn't have a profit and loss statement for three years. I had no idea. Like we were very as ignorant as it gets in terms of finance and business. We had an accountant and we just signed the paperwork. And we knew that we were making money because the bank account ended up with more money at the end of every month. That's it. But no KPIs, no sophisticated management, nothing whatsoever. I know that might disappoint a lot of people, but that's the reality. That's how we got started. Now, today, I think I know better for both good and bad. I think that for many entrepreneurs, ignorance is bliss. It allows you to make bold bets that if you actually knew what you were doing, you wouldn't do, you wouldn't make. But today I pay a lot of attention to what's called the core interaction. And that is, everything I do is is two-sided platforms. And that core interaction is the interaction between the buyer and the seller, the producer and the consumer is what is, what's that moment when that value is created? And I identify that unit of measurement and I track it. So in the case of voice one, two, three, for example, is matches of clients with voice actors. In the case of Bonnie Studio, is projects fulfilled because it's not only about the match, it's actually doing something. So it's about, and it's not even projects posted. It's about projects fulfilled. It's when the client, when you guys get something done and say, yes, I approve this project. I accept it. Right? That's, that's what we measure, how many times that happens. And in the case of Torre, the new company I'm running now, it's also number of job opportunities fulfilled as well. Yeah, awesome. So really, I guess they're quite simple metrics, but um, you know, really good metrics to look at. And in particular, by the way, especially on early stages, I believe that entrepreneurs should focus not only on that metric, but that metric limited by returning users. So it's not about how many times you get that value created. It's about how many times you get that value created for people that is coming back. Yeah, makes sense. Because that's what determine what determines whether you have something that uh, can be considered have reached product market fit, meaning you're going to grow the business. If you're depending exclusively on new users, it's very difficult to eventually scale. Yeah, it makes sense. And what would you say is the, the best piece of advice that you've had given to you over the uh, the journey? That wherever I go, I should try to be the youngest, the poorest, and the dumbest. I'll be surrounded by yourself by people that are more intelligent than you are, richer than you are, and older than you are. <laughs> I don't always do it, but I think it's one of the best pieces of advice that I've gotten. Yeah, awesome. By pure osmosis, you end up becoming better when you follow that approach. Alex, in um, 2016, you started Torre. Can you tell us a bit about Torre and how it got started and tell us a bit about your vision with, with that business? 
So given the success of Voice 1, 2, 3 and Bonnie Studio, which, by the way, those are two successes, but I had had many failures. We can fill 10 podcasts out of just failures that I had. The success of Voice 1, 2, 3 and Bonnie Studio led me to identify that it's not going to be too long before most of the allocation of talent into job opportunities is going to be primarily done by artificial intelligence. And for any kind of job, I'm not talking only creative or freelancing jobs. I'm talking about blue collar, white collar, freelance, full-time, part-time, remote, office-based, all of those. And it sounds a little bit like sci-fi, but 25 years ago, it would also sound sci-fi that instead of going to the librarian and asking for books related to a topic, we will open our magic crystal box and ask a question and get information almost in real time in terms of what we are supposed to read for any given topic. And that's what we do today many times per day, right? So it's my belief that something like that is going to happen in the not so far future when companies are looking for talent and when people are looking for jobs as well. So in 2016, I started with the question, if recruiting were invented from scratch, what would it be like? What would it look like? And I founded Torre with the goal of creating the platform and the network that is going to enable for that future to happen. And we are doing things very, very differently. We don't use resumes to begin with. Instead of resumes, we use profiles with thousands of data points for each candidate. And those data points are provided in part by the candidate, but in part also by people that know the candidate from professional and academic perspective. And while we as humans, we can see a portion of those profiles, it's really optimized for machine learnings, uh, sorry, for machines to learn about them and then make predictions. Uh, Something else that we do is that we don't compare the candidate with the opportunity alone. We also compare the candidate with the team that he or she is going to be working with, the bosses, the colleagues. And we do the comparison, not by analyzing only the experience and and education of those people, but we also pay attention to values, soft skills, hard skills, verifications, recommendations, personality types, professional culture, and many other things. We have identified over 100 different factors that need to be taken into account. So the end result for the company is, and for the job seeker is kind of a Netflix experience. Netflix doesn't ask you to watch the 200 movies for you to know which one you like. It tells you out of all the movies that I have, this is the most likely uh, for you to like. So we do that with candidates and for people as well. Like you don't have to sort through thousands of jobs and apply to a few hundred for you to find a job. Like this is the one that you like that you are going to be ranking high for it. So after two years of working on the MVP, on the minimal viable product, we finally went live. It's a very ambitious project. And we went after the remote market. So today we are already the largest job board for full-time remote jobs out there in the English-speaking market. So we have uh, companies from all over the world, including companies from Australia, finding talent uh, from all over the world, including Australians as well in, in there. But we are not going to stop there. Our goal, this is what they call here in Silicon Valley a moonshot, our goal is to become the global platform for jobs. For that, by the way, we also had to come up with a new business model. So yeah, that's what we're doing at Torre. That's an amazing vision. So Alex, Torre Negra, what's next? What's the future look like for you over the next five years? Hopefully scaling Torre. Uh, also scaling the other businesses. I'm happy and humble 
by having built having been able to build a team of CEOs and executives for all of those companies that we have right now. Our goal is not to exit uh, anytime soon. Our goal is not to build businesses to sell them and make a buck. Our goal is to make businesses that last and uh, that have a good impact on humankind. And by the way, that's why I left the role of being the CEO of Oni Studio to become the CEO of Torre, just because while I believe that Bonnie Studio and Bonnie Studio continues to grow, I believe that it's our obligation to maximize our impact. I believe that with Torre, I'm going to be maximizing our impact. There is, my favorite movie is 2001 Space Odyssey. And HAL 9000, the, the character in there, they ask him, so what's your goal? What's your objective? And he said something that I ended up like copying, and it's my motto in life. He said that... I'm putting myself to the fullest possible use, which is all I can think any conscious entity can ever hope to do. So that's what I'm trying to do as well. And why Torre now? Because while I, I mean, there are thousands, potentially millions of companies and very intelligent people today creating tools, creating hardware, creating artificial intelligence that are doing things pretty well, so well that they are replacing many humans in their jobs. And that's a reality that we cannot change. It is going to happen no matter how much regulation we want to add to it. Many of us opt to just complain about it and do nothing. I believe that there is a path and that path is to actually use those tools, use that artificial intelligence also for something else. And that something else is to help people actually find the best job they can find, to find a job that is going to pay well, to find a job for them that where they are going to be able to last a significant amount of time for as long as they like, to find a job that is going to make their life fulfilling. And my goal is to do it for everyone. I'm not going to stop until we get to that point. Alex, thanks for joining us on Founders On Air today. It's been fascinating hearing your story and uh, we love your vision. I'm sure you've inspired other founders listening to have a go. Over the coming weeks, we'll be bringing you more terrific founders who have real and actionable insights to share. So don't forget to subscribe on uh, foundersonair.com. We're on the Apple podcast or uh, Spotify stores. Um, Send us your questions and feedback via the website. It's bye for now from Founders On Air. You've been listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum, a podcast designed for founders by founders to help you scale your business. For show notes and to ask questions for future episodes, go to foundersonair.com. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next time.